Hey everyone, I'm your host Shayna. I'm back with a brand new episode of Criminal Beauty, and I have someone else here with me. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hey guys, I'm Caitlin. I'm a mom of two. I live in West Virginia, and I'm also a beauty guide with One Life by Alcone. I'm so excited for you to be joining me. This has been a long time coming, even before I asked you, or you came at me rather, when I mentioned something about it. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. So I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't even sure it was gonna be easy finding a co-host, but it just kind of was like, hey, hi, 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 how are you? (coughs) So I'm sure y'all don't want to hear us jibber jabbering the entire time. So let me tell you about the case we will be covering today. Some of you may be familiar with it, and this may be the first time you are hearing about it. This week's episode is about the sick death of a boy who was found by a college student in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1957. This case is of the boy in the box. So, this all took place in 1957 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. A man that had been hunting in the area of Fox Chase was stopping to check on his muskrat traps when he noticed the boy in the box. However, he didn't report it in fear that police would take his traps, which, honestly, there's a dead body and he is more concerned about his traps, which makes no sense to me. A few days later, a young college student, 26-year-old Frederick J. Benonis, I think that's how you pronounce it, had spotted a rabbit running into the bushes in the area. He knew there were animal traps in the area, so he had stopped his car to investigate. I'm assuming he wanted to make sure that the rabbit wasn't going to get caught in one of the traps that had been placed. As he was looking around, he discovered the box that had the boy in it. Frederick was reluctant to report what he had found, but would report it the following day after hearing of the disappearance of Mary Jane Baker. Mary Jane Baker was a four-year-old girl who was reported missing the day after he discovered the body. Frederick claimed that he first thought the boy was a doll and that he almost brushed it off, but on further examination, he realized that it wasn't a doll at all. He called police believing that what he saw may have been the girl they were looking for, which wasn't the case. They later found little Mary Baker in a vacant house where she had wandered and ended up dying of starvation. The police received the report and opened an investigation on February 26th. The boy was found naked, wrapped in a blanket inside the box, with his head and shoulders sticking out the side of the box. They took the boy's fingerprints and they were, at first, pretty optimistic about the boy's soon being identified. Police obviously questioned Frederick about why he waited and he had told police that the reason 
he did wait was because he had been spying on students at a nearby Good Shepherd school and didn't want authorities knowing why he was actually there. First off, you're creepy. Second, <laughs> that might seem pretty sus. Right? Right? Like, he, you're sitting there spying on girls and there's a dead body right there. Like, I, I don't... Mm. Yeah, and it makes you wonder why he didn't think of it, like, straight off. Like, why he was thinking it was a doll. Like, nobody's gonna find a doll, like, random, naked doll, for that matter. Right. Like, there's this thing that happens a lot that people think that, uh, dead bodies are mannequins. And it's never a mannequin. <laughs> never. That's that shouldn't be the first thing that pops in your head. No, I'd be I'd be looking at it like, what's really happening here? What is this? I want to know because this looks not okay. Like it does not look okay. Definitely. So the Good Shepherd School that that Frederick was spying on these students was a school for girls if that gives you an inkling as to why he was spying so upon arriving at the medical examiner's office the body of the boy was examined and numerous things were noted the first was that the boy had appeared to have died of blunt force trauma to the head there were four round shaped bruises on his forehead and blood was drained this all appeared to look like an extension of years of, of abuse. There were bruises all over his poor body. His lips were dry, cracked, and bloody. His body was extremely emaciated. So, like, so much so that his ribs were showing through his skin. Despite all of the trauma and abuse he was shown, he didn't experience any broken bones or deformities. Unfortunately... Around the time that the body was found, with it being winter and cold, they were not able to determine a time of death. The medical examiner did, however, say that he estimated that the boy had passed away anywhere from a few days prior to a few weeks. He leaned more toward a few days due to the box being dry among a week of rain. Other things were noted like the boy had been cleaned, like bathed and his palms and the soles of his feet were wrinkled like when you get pruny the boy's hair had also been cut and not fashionably it was chopped and looked rushed his fingernails had also been clipped the medical examiner also stated that there was a brown residue in his esophagus which would indicate that he had vomited shortly before he had died like i stated earlier the police were optimistic about the boy being identified pretty soon but no one had come forward with any useful information or to ID the boy. The boy's description didn't match any missing child's reports. In hopes of generating leads, police broadcasted the case throughout the country via police teletype. Uh, police teletype, which is also known as teleprinting, are typewriters that can independently type out messages sent over non-switched telephone circuits, the public telephone network, radio, or microwave links. This broadcast led to visitors from 10 states traveling to Pennsylvania in an attempt to identify the boy. Eventually, a request was sent out to the residents of Philadelphia, child welfare agencies, and other law enforcement groups to ask them to call in any information they may have had regarding boys that match the description of the boy in the box. 
mainly ones who were known to have either recently disappeared or who were in the care of someone who was known to abuse children. Investigators even requested that the local media cover the case. This resulted in the Philadelphia Inquirer printing 400,000 flyers that were distributed across the area and placed at places like gas stations and even on electricity bills. Even an article describing the boy's scars was printed in a pediatric journal. Unfortunately, despite the case getting an abundance of media coverage in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley, the boy's identity remained a mystery. Police went to canvassing neighborhoods and checked all the hospitals, orphanages, and foster homes in the area, but that too was a dead end. All the children were accounted for. They even tried to compare his fingerprints and footprints with hospital registries and national databases, but hit a wall when nothing turned up. This was leading them to the conclusion that the boy was born at home, but never reported. The only thing that they had was a lone, long, brown hair that they found at the scene that didn't belong to the boy. Authorities then turned their focus on the box that the boy was found in. The box was once housing a white bassinet. They found a serial number on the box that allowed investigators to trace it back to a JCPenney store in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, located on 69th Street and Chestnut Street. They were able to get a date of sale on it, too. It had been sold between December 5th of 1956 and February 16th of 1957 for $7.50, which is, like, extremely cheap for a bassinet. Like, if you're a mom, you know that $7.50 is, like... Not even a package of diapers. <laughs> right? Anyway, this also led to them finding out that only 12 of those bassinets were sold in total, which looks pretty promising, but they were only able to track down eight of the 12 people that had purchased one, and all those leads turned cold. The crime scene was combed over by 270 police academy recruits. All in all, they found three possible items to be submitted as evidence. A royal blue corduroy cap, which the police took big interest in, a tan child scarf, and a handkerchief with the letter G in the corner. As I stated, great interest was put on the cap. It appeared to be in excellent condition, and it had the manufacturer's stamp in the lining of it. The stamp read, Robin's Bald Eagle Cap. 2603 South 7th Street, Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As you can imagine, the police headed to the address on the cap. They questioned the shop's owner, Hannah Robbins, and she had remembered the cap because the man had her customize it. According to Hannah Robbins, the man that came in and bought the cap was between the ages of 26 and 30 and had blonde hair. She said that after he purchased the cap, he left and she never saw him again. Police went from store to store, asking everyone if they recognized the cap or the boy. Despite going to a hundred different stores, they were unable to find anyone who did. They kept hitting dead ends, so a post-mortem photo of the boy, clothed and in a seated position, was released and distributed. The boy was soon laid to rest in a potter's field in... Holmesburg, Pennsylvania, next to Mechanicsville and Dunks Ferry Road. His tombstone read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown child. There are so many theories around this case, and 
One came from a forensic artist that believed that the boy could have passed for a girl while he was alive. The artist drew an image of him as a girl. However, no leads came from that. A formal medical examiner's office employee, Remington Bristow, felt a personal connection to the case and worked really hard to find a resolution, so much so that he had hopes of coaxing the boy's parents out of hiding with publishing a false article stating that the boy's death was accidental and that his loved ones didn't have the money for a funeral. Unfortunately, this tactic didn't work. Bristow also personally put up a $1,000 reward for information and traveled to Arizona and Texas looking for leads. He was even known to carry a mask of the boy's face with him. Which, good on you guy for sticking to it and having dedication, but that's a bit weird to carry a mask of a boy who was murdered around with you. Like, I don't, I don't see how he would, like how a mask of the boy's face. <laughs> right, like showing pictures or whatever like do you recognize this boy and they're like no but then yeah like the flowers or something right like flowers would be okay but like why are you carrying a mask with you right like yeah let me just grab this mask and put it on now do you recognize the boy like no that's not how it works yeah uh anyway there was some talk and speculation that the boy had died as a result of drowning due to the pruning of his hands and feet but there were no markers to indicate that. So this case was featured on America's Most Wanted, eventually hoping for new leads to form, but to no avail. So in 1998, his remains were exhumed in order to extract maternal DNA for testing. The DNA was taken from the enamel from one of his teeth. They sent the DNA to the University of North Texas and entered it into both national and local databases. And again, this produced no hits. The boy was then laid to rest in a grave marked America's Unknown Child in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. The service garnered significant public attention and the residents continued to keep the grave decorated with stuffed animals and flowers. In March of 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial reconstruction of the boy and added his details to their database. Then, in August 2018, the genetic genealogist that helped identify the Golden State Killer announced they would be using DNA profiling in order to try and identify the boy through familial DNA. I want to talk about some of the details of the boy. He was described as white with a pale complexion. He is believed to be between the ages of three and six, which means he was likely born in or around 1952. It is important to note that the x-rays had shown that he had suffered from arrested growth or failure to thrive due to neglect or abuse. And this like malnourishment type thing that he was put through. He stood about three foot to three foot four inches and weighed about 30 pounds and he had blue eyes. A lot of attention was placed on his hair, which was a light brown to sandy blonde color. Prior to his death or even shortly after, 
I think I had mentioned this before, his hair had been chopped off, making it appear as if he had a bowl cut of sorts, and strands of his hair were found on his body. The amount of hair that was on and around his body is where the theory of him being portrayed as a girl while he was alive came from. Back then, it wasn't common for males to have long hair like that. Back then, it like what was found on him wasn't common. There are also other interesting things that I found, like the fact that he had upwards of seven scars, and three of them may indicate that he had surgical procedures done. So one was on his chest, another on his groin, and then the third one was on his left ankle. Like they were all healed up. Like they barely left a scar. Like it was hairline scar healed up perfectly. The one on his ankle, they said it looked like a cut down incision, which is made to expose a vein so that a needle can be inserted for things like infusions or transfusions these three scars alone would make you think he had been seen by a medical professional before but there were never any medical records of it like none like they couldn't find any type of like medical document stating that he had gotten any type of surgery The other four scars were in various locations on his body and didn't appear to be from a medical procedure. There was one half-inch scar on the left side of his chest, a round, irregular-shaped one on his left elbow, and a well-heeled L-shaped scar on his chin that was about a quarter-inch long on each side. There was mention of... That makes you wonder what they was doing. Right. Right, like, this boy has so much, like, and that's another thing, like, they said that, like, the theory with with him being portrayed as a girl, and he had, like, that, what looked like a surgical procedure done on his, his growing where all of his manhood is, like, what would that, like, I mean, they obviously didn't specify, like, what part, like, what part was scarred, but again makes you wonder like if they would have cut it off right like that's what i'm saying like some kind of sex change or something i don't and that's what i tried to look for that like i tried to look for things like see if there was anything on exactly what kind of procedure was done on that area or any of the areas in general because like i said before if they looked like they were medical scarring for medical procedures, like you would think there would be some sort of record. Yeah, nobody, no general person is going to be able to make a scar look that good without some sort of background, at least. Yeah, like they would have to know, uh, like have to know, you know, stuff from the medical field. They would have to have instruments that like didn't have like charaded edges and stuff like that like you would have to have like a scalpel for all of that and especially like the healing part of it since they were like hairline it wouldn't be something that would be done easily yeah no especially with like the hairline healing scar like that would have to be like a super clean cut and a really good suture like glued up type thing which I found no definitely yeah which I found super weird but 
There was also a mention of the boy having an eye infection or disease that was treated with medication before he died. <laughs> Y'all, honestly, it's frustrating me that none of these procedures or medications were ever medically documented. It doesn't make sense to me. And all of the things the investigators found that the boy's fingernails and toenails had recently been manicured. Now, I know DNA wasn't like a big thing back in the, the 50s. Like, the, like, obviously DNA is super advanced nowadays. But like, you would think they would they were trimming nails and stuff and cleaning them up for to hide evidence <clears throat> i don't know how that would work back then but that's the first thing that comes to my mind um so the blanket that the boy was wrapped in was of some interest to investigators they were hopeful that they would be able to use the blanket to track down who purchased it but soon realized that there were thousands produced and shipped across the United States, and they couldn't pinpoint where it had been purchased. Now, I also read somewhere <clears throat> that, um, that like, the blanket had also, like, had pieces cut cut out of it. Because it was, it was a pretty large blanket. I think they said it was, like, like, don't quote me on this. I think they said it was, like, 67 inches by, like like 48 inches or something like that so it was like a pretty big blanket and they said that there were like pieces cut out of it and there was a couple of pieces that they couldn't find like that they were still looking for which was which is weird like like one of the pieces that they had found had like um like automotive grease on it you know like some people they have old towels or old shirts and stuff they'll cut them up and use them like as grease rags Th that's basically what they were saying like like um that it had been used for like they were cutting it to use like square pieces as like grease rags so i don't know and then there were pieces missing like i think they said there was a a piece that was like 3.7 inches by like eight point something inches that they couldn't find of the blanket i don't know it's weird like it almost makes you think like the boy was killed and then it was an afterthought to grab a an old cut up blanket to wrap him in like i don't know anyways the case itself has been opened and closed many times but never went anywhere for investigators the boy is known by three different names across america first one is the boy in the box america's unknown child and the fox chase boy So let's talk a few theories. A4 mentioned there are a lot, but I picked two that seemed more likely given the circumstances. Theory one, this theory is one of the most thoroughly researched theories in the case. So some believe that the boy had been the child of a girl who lived at a foster home located about a mile and a half from where the boy was found. This theory was one that Remington Bristow heavily focused on. So, remember the former medical examiner office employee. He believed that the boy had been the son of a woman named Anna Marie Nicoletti, who was the stepdaughter of Arthur Nicoletti, the man who ran the foster home. Anna Marie had actually had four children out of wedlock, 
three of those children were stillborn, and the fourth died after being electrocuted outside of a supermarket. Apparently, he was on one of those nickel-to-ride horses, and it shorted out, and Anna had gone into the store for some things while he was riding it. It's believed that the boy's death was an accident, and the result of the family not wanting anyone to find out she was an unwed mother. Bristow contacted a New Jersey-based psychic in 1960 who told him to look for a house that matched the description of the foster home. He later brought the psychic to the dump site and she ended up leading him directly to the home. Upon attending an estate sale at the home, he happened upon a bassinet that resembled the one sold at JCPenney, along with blankets that looked similar to the one that the boy was found wrapped in. Investigators had looked at this angle numerous times over the years, but didn't find any evidence that supported this theory, and later, DNA testing proved that he was not Anna's son. Now, this next theory is one that really sticks out to me. It all makes sense if you think about it. So, this prominent theory involves a girl who claimed her mother was the one who killed the boy. This came after a psychiatrist based in Cincinnati, Ohio, had called and told them that a patient by the name of M, which it wasn't clear exactly what her name was, it was just M, had told her that she needed to speak with them, by them meaning the police. According to M, the boy was a victim of human sex trafficking. She had claimed that her abusive mother had purchased the boy from his parents when she was 11 years old, saying she distinctly remembers her mother handing his parents an envelope in exchange for the boy. After that, she said that she and the boy were both subjected to years of sexual and physical abuse, which eventually resulted in his death. She said that one night he had thrown up his dinner of baked beans, which led to him being beaten into a semi-conscious state. While this woman tried cleaning him up in the bath, he had died. So I'm going to stop right there because I want to remind y'all of what had happened. So in the autopsy, in earlier in the episode, I had mentioned something about how the medical examiner had noted a few things. Um, one being that there was a brown residue found in his esophagus, which indicates him throwing something up before he died which, again, fits this theory almost to a T. Secondly, the boy's hands and feet were pruned up. So, like, he was cleaned prior. So, he had thrown up, according to this theory, he had thrown up his baked beans, which would leave the residue in his esophagus, and then, and then she tried to bathe him after beating him, which would result in him getting pruny hands and feet that's why this sticks out to me so in an attempt to conceal his death M stated that her mother had forced her to accompany her and help her dispose of the boy so they drove to the Fox Chase neighborhood in Philadelphia when they were getting ready to remove the boy from the trunk of the car a man pulled over behind them thinking they had a flat tire and wanted to offer help M was asked to stand in front of the license plate to conceal it from the stranger that had stopped so that her mother had time to decline help from the man and the man could be on his way. That's already sus. So, anyways. Definitely. Right? Like, you. 
But it all adds up. You seem to like it makes you wonder what actually happened between like her beating him and him passing away in the bathtub. Like if he like aspirated or if it was like from the fact that she beat him so much kind of thing. Right, like it's it, it she had stated that she the woman had beat him to a, like a semi-conscious state but like if you think about it if he was already subjected to years of sexual and physical abuse he could have been so badly beaten by the time she beat him for the last time that he just had so much damage done to either the inside of his body or his brain or something so like yeah it just completely stopped right at one point right like so like his body just gave up and, and died. Like, and she could have hit him to a point to where it like didn't fracture his skull or nothing because it. The medical examiner stated that you know he didn't have any deformities or any broken bones, but she could have hit him hard enough in the head to where he was still semi-conscious, but his brain could have started bleeding. Like so, <clears throat> but this all adds up to me. Like this theory right here makes the most sense to me. And I don't know why it wasn't, well, it, I do know why it wasn't followed up, which I'll discuss in a second, but it just doesn't, like, it makes all the sense in the world to me. It definitely adds up to where, like, I can't think of the word that I'm trying to say now. But it makes sense to all the evidence of what happened, but you also kind of wonder what was the cause of death, even though they don't have, like, the perfect indications. Well, they had stated that, like, they assumed that blunt force trauma was the cause of death, which is basically she probably or whoever it was like I'm saying she because I really believe like I know this is all like speculation like, but I believe she probably smacked him really hard upside the head with something right but it's like you don't know like obviously it was blunt force trauma but like you don't know if it like caused his brain to bleed or like if she right right had something else happen that was just crazy Right, right. But I, I really wish they had followed up on this because I really think that if they had, because they didn't. And like I said, this seems like one of the most logical theories with an eyewitness that not only had a full story, but touched on aspects of the investigation that hadn't been made public, including the 1957 statement from a man who had claimed to have witnessed a mother and her child pulled over in the area around the time that the boys found. Not to mention, again, what I have already said twice, the medical examiner's notes. But skepticism was among them because of her mental state, and not only that, investigators searched her home and questioned neighbors with no evidence uncovered and no one having any idea about the boy living there. Like, so they... Because of her mental state, because she, because if you remember correctly, I said that a psychiatrist had contacted the police, saying that this girl needed to talk to the police. Right. They basically pushed her aside because of her mental state, and that they couldn't find any evidence in the home, but it's been years. Like, 
like they had way too many chances to clean it up at that point right like it's already even if there was anything that they could take for evidence it would have been compromised at that point anyway because it wouldn't have been viable then that's what i'm saying like they just kind of tossed it aside like it wasn't like you can't search and you know god forbid somebody have a bad memory like and if she was if she bought that boy illegally obviously she would have had to bought him illegally and she specifically bought him for you know human sex trafficking or whatever and was regularly sexually and physically abusing him she's not gonna make it public that she has a kid another kid there like so even if the neighbors and that just ups her chances of going to jail right and so like even if the neighbors are saying like no we don't remember a boy staying there they're not going to because the woman was obviously smart enough to keep him hid like to keep him hidden right it just didn't make sense so here we are yeah almost seven decades later and not a single lead in the case no justice for this boy and the person or persons who took his innocent life lived theirs as normal but i would like to add that the boy's dna dental records and fingerprints are available for comparison those with information regarding the identity of the boy are asked to contact the homicide division of the philadelphia police department at 215-686-3334 Tips can be called into the Philadelphia County Medical Examiner's Office at either 215-685-7445 or 215-685-7458. Until next time, stay safe, friends. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit that subscribe or follow button and tune in every Monday for a new episode. Episode suggestions can be sent to criminalbeautypod at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at criminalbeauty20 and on Instagram at criminalbeautypod.